Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline, Will They or Won't They? New developments in the Kavanaugh confirmation. The ball is now back in Senate Republicans' court after a week of back-and-forth negotiations over the when, the what, and the how of a Senate hearing. Professor Christine Blasey Ford says she will testify in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee next week about her allegations that Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her decades ago when they were in high school. But there is a lot of vague language in the letter that our lawyers sent to the committee at today's 2.30 p.m. deadline. It reads in part, Dr. Ford accepts the committee's request to provide her firsthand knowledge of Brett Kavanaugh's sexual misconduct next week. Although many aspects of the proposal you provided via email on September 21st, 2018 at 2.33 p.m. are fundamentally inconsistent with the committee's promise of a fair, impartial investigation into her allegations. And we are disappointed with the leaks and the bullying that have tainted the process. We are hopeful that we can reach agreement on details. The letter also asks for, yeah, more negotiations. So now we wait. It's hard to keep up, but here's how we got here. Earlier this week, Ford opened the door to giving her testimony to the committee. On Thursday, Ford's lawyer presented a list of terms. Those terms included that provisions be made for her safety, that only senators be allowed to ask her questions, that she not be in the same room as Kavanaugh, that he testifies first, and that other witnesses, including Kavanaugh's friend Mark Judge, be subpoenaed as well. On Friday, the GOP counteroffered, agreeing to hold a hearing this upcoming Wednesday, provided Ford testifies first, and an independent counsel is allowed to ask her questions. The deadline for response was Friday at 5 p.m. That was later extended to 10 p.m. Ford's lawyer asked for an additional day to make her decision, and Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley once again moved the deadline to 2.30 p.m. today, at which point Ford agreed to appear next week. And here we are. Here's the deal. This week will be a defining one, not just for the fate of Brett Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court, but for all of us. How will we decide to mediate these kinds of disputes in a politically fraught, high stakes, emotionally charged election year and a Me Too environment? How can we handle this responsibly? The truth is we don't know what happened and we likely never will. So yes, we should have a hearing. Yes, Professor Ford should be heard, and Judge Kavanaugh should be allowed to respond to her accusations. But at the end of the day, we as a society will have to make a judgment call. Do we base that call on the character witnesses, who has more of them, or whose are more compelling? Or maybe the actual witnesses, well, they seem to favor him. Or is the threshold 
an FBI investigation. Is that what should be the deciding factor? Here's what I do know. Anyone who's telling you with certainty that Judge Kavanaugh is guilty wants him to be. And anyone who's telling you with certainty that Judge Kavanaugh is innocent wants him to be. So ask yourself as we gear up for what will be one of the most important weeks in politics that will set a precedent for decades, maybe even centuries to come. What is the standard we want to set for future generations? All right, here to help me break down all the latest in this ever-evolving major moment in history, CNN Chief Political Correspondent Dana Bash. Dana, the 2.30 deadline today came. We got the letter from Professor Ford's lawyers. Do we know how the White House has responded? Well, there's frustration, uh, which is understandable. It would be that the case for any president of any party for a nominee to be in this position because the cards are in the hands of the, the, the Hill. Senate Republicans, particularly uh, Chuck Crassley, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, his staff, uh, the leadership in the Republican uh, on the Republican side, and to a lesser extent, the minority. Uh, and what is happening in my reporting, and it's becoming more and more clear, is that the absolute breakdown, unbelievable breakdown, even for today's times, of comity. Uh, and of basic negotiation and discussion across party lines, which should happen in any nomination of this import, are not happening, and it's just the opposite. It is making things even harder. And so the, the, the answers and non-answers that you're getting back and forth between Senator Grassley, the chairman, and Professor Ford and her attorney are even more poisoned because of the poison atmosphere that it's, that it's in. So to the point, is this is this going to happen? I mean, all the terms are still up for nego negotiation, right? They are. Uh, just as you said, the response from Professor Ford's attorney today was, yes, we accept, except X, Y, and Z. And, and the yeah. terms that you discussed that you laid out so well are still up in the air. Um, look, she wants to get to yes. At least her lawyers are making clear she wants to get to yes. Uh, and the uh, Republican leadership should want to get to yes, because any other outcome at this point is is yeah. very problematic, substantively and politically. So it's hard to imagine that they don't. But anything goes in this environment, it's sad to say. Well, let's talk about the politics on both sides. On mm -hmm. Friday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell insisted Judge Kavanaugh will be on the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Do you get the sense from other Republicans on the Hill, though, that they're less confident of that? Or is that basically the line that you're hearing? We have the math. They don't have the math. Um, they they want to have the math. And that was a line that Mitch McConnell used. Um, it was I think it was aspirational. It was also mm. a political line because of who he was speaking to. He was speaking to a group of conservatives at a mm -hmm. very important gathering of conservatives. And he also said not just we have the votes is don't get rattled which I thought was really mm. fascinating because as much as we hear the pressure from the left and even from independents saying, you know, give her give her a chance, the pressure that I'm hearing from Republican senators and and, and those in and around them that they're getting from the right to say what is going on here? 
uh, is is even even as big. And when you're talking about U.S. senators from really red states where their conservative base will make or break them, it's important not to forget that. Wow. Um, okay. On the other side. Do Democrats you talk to believe mm-hmm. that once Ford testifies, it's over? It will kill the Kavanaugh confirmation? Is that sort of the underlying uh, no. belief on the Hill? No, no. I, you're right. Publicly, what you said in your open is, is so right that uh, people who say that they just believe him um, without hearing him or without obviously knowing the facts, none of us know all, know all the facts, yeah. um, are saying so because they want that to be the case. Hmm. But but truth serum, <laughs> um, <laughs> Democrats and Republicans, they don't know what's going to happen. And that is something that we have to keep in mind because hmm. it, it's, it's for both parties, it's the public that is going to have to decide this, but it's really these U.S. senators. And in particular, yeah. I would say there are four Republican senators who are, uh, who are the key here. Susan yeah. Collins of Maine, and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska are probably the most important. Jeff Flake uh, and Bob Corker also. But for the two women especially, if this goes down the way it looks like it is going to go down, and there is a hearing, and it's he said versus she said, it's going to be the senators who are going to have to decide who, whom to believe and right. weighing that against the rest of the, of the, uh, of the judges background in the context of his of his experience and credibility and that is a lot of weight to put on them they are the jury it's it's gonna it's it's going to be historic uh what happens this week or or maybe next whenever um uh, lastly before you go some democrats i know i've talked to i'm sure you have too were not thrilled Mm -hmm. with the way that diane feinstein handled Mm -hmm. these allegations Mm -hmm. if this doesn't end the kavanaugh confirmation do you think this could hurt her re-election bid it's interesting because she's in this unusual situation in California where she's running for re-election this year against a Democrat. Um, right now, the poll shows right. she's, so she's doing fine. But, you know, the thing about Dianne Feinstein is that she, she, I think maybe people would say to her credit, she has trouble playing politics and she plays the role of a public servant and a U.S. Mm-hmm. senator. And mm-hmm. I was actually just talking to uh, another Democratic member of the committee before coming on with you because I knew you wanted to talk about this, Essie. Yeah. And the feeling is that while there's certainly some grumbling, how could she hold this for so long? She made a promise to Professor Ford that she would keep this out of out of the mix, mm, that she mm-hmm. would keep her not just anonymity, but that she would keep her, her claim out of the mix. Right. And it wasn't, it, it, and, and if she had her druthers, she meaning Senator Feinstein, yeah. it would still be the case because that mm. was the initial wish of Professor Ford. But it was leaked and it's now out of her hands. Wow. Uh, well, great reporting, Dana. Thanks so much for joining me. me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Busy week. <laughs> Get some sleep. All right. Up next. Can anyone really win in the Kavanaugh confirmation battle? And a little bit later in the show, was he serious or sarcastic? The answer could determine the fate of the number two official at the DOJ. So will they or won't they? While we wait and see whether Christine Ford and the Senate Judiciary Committee can agree on terms to testify next week, one thing I know for certain, no one can win this. Not the accuser whose story was leaked, whose life has been upended. Not Judge Kavanaugh, for whom this allegation, true or not, will forever be an asterisk by his name. 
not Democrats, who look unabashedly craven and opportunistic, not Republicans who look unsympathetic to a woman's allegations, and certainly not the American public, who is learning just how useless and partisan the confirmation process is. So with all of that in mind, just what are the stakes here? For more on the political fallout, I have on the right, senior columnist at the Daily Beast, CNN political commentator Matt Lewis, on the left, CEO of Women in Need, former New York City uh, Council Speaker Christine Quinn. Um, okay, Christine, let me start with you. Okay. Let's agree, all of us, that Trump and anyone else is wrong to question Christine Ford's timing yep. of this revelation. Yep. Why she didn't expose this 35 years ago, I'm not even going to address it. That's inappropriate and awful. But even Democrats are questioning the timing of Senator Feinstein's revealing this months after she had the letter, a week after Kavanaugh testified. Are you worried that this looks like a political stunt? You know, I think the best thing that could happen here yeah. is that they be separated. If people want mm. to ask questions about what Senator Feinstein did, I think that's fair. Okay. Now, I think we can also say if the letter came, as she said, with a request for confidentiality, yeah. that that's being between a rock and a hard place, right? right? But um, so I think that's fair. It's really irrelevant uh -huh. to Professor Ford. Sure. She did what she thought she had to do. Right. Why the Senate and the Congress member seems to have walked it right over to the senator's office right. in a timely fashion. I think those yeah. are fair questions, okay. but they should not be held against Professor Ford. Sure. Sure. No, I agree. Uh, Matt, on the other side, on Friday, Trump said what Republicans hoped he would not which uh, was that Ford or her loving parents should have said something about this years ago. While Republicans and even uh, White House advisors like Kellyanne Conway said she should be heard, she should not be attacked, do you think Trump just blew up any good will that maybe Republicans had earned over the week? Well, I, actually, I think that the Ed Whalen story, that, mm -hmm. that, that bizarre conspiracy yeah. theory is actually did more damage. Yeah, People know who Donald Trump is. By the way, it's, just for our audience, yeah. that conspiracy theory that maybe this was a case of mistaken identity by right. Ford. I mean, this is a little more inside baseball, but actually I think that was a turning point. You know, Donald Trump, mm. people know who Donald Trump is. People, uh, it's sort of baked in the cake. Right. Uh, but I think that, that Kavanaugh had turned a corner. It, it was starting mm. to look like it was starting to look like Dr. Ford and Democrats were playing this game of delaying. She had said she right. wanted to come forward. And then once, you know, uh, Grassley and McConnell were like, OK, we'll set the date. Yeah. And she started to back away. I felt like Republicans hmm. turned the corner. Kavanaugh was gaining momentum. Right. And then that weird conspiracy yeah. theory yeah. about the mistaken identity. I actually think that did more damage hmm. to Kavanaugh. Now, in terms of midterm elections and are Republicans going to be blamed and, and, and thought of as being anti-woman? Well, mm -hmm. of course, Donald Trump plays into that right, stereotype. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, Christine, a number of Democrats have said that she must be believed and that he must be guilty. Uh, Senator Mazzi Hirono said that questioning her about this was re-victimizing her. Uh, is well, this think a good... Let me, just, let me just ask. No, it's okay. Is this a good standard to set? that one allegation from 35 years ago with no corroborating witnesses, in fact, witnesses who deny it happened, is enough to kill a political appointment or an election or a job promotion. Well, look, I want to say, and you said this at the beginning, yeah. I just want to reaffirm that the questions that have been asked about why did you wait, et cetera, the, the senator's right about those. Those are, yes. are terrible questions that you've said. Yes. Look, I 
the the professor has needs to be heard. Yes. She needs to be heard and she needs to be heard in a way that is constructive and yeah. not re-victimizing. Yeah. Do I tend to believe survivors? I do. I yeah. ran a crime victims assistance agency. I think it is you know, incredibly, incredibly rare that someone comes forward and says they were a victim of sexual violence when they weren't because right. it's so traumatic. Mm -hmm. But she has to be heard. Of course, he has the right to be heard if he so chooses, which it right. appears he has chosen. Yeah. But the problem is that so many people leap to not believing the victim. Yeah, that, I, that's where society, right. yeah. not just politicians, no, but that's where that society starts. Uh, I got I to gotta bring this to a tangential but related topic. Keith Ellison, mm -hmm. Democratic congressman from Minnesota, deputy chair of the DNC, running for attorney general in Minnesota, has been accused by two women of domestic violence. Not only aren't Democrats insisting that they be believed and that he step aside, he easily won his Democratic primary, but at least one of his accusers has said that her own party, the Democratic Party, has uh, smeared and isolated her. Um, here was Keith Ellison last night in a debate. Are you confident that no one else will step forward with any other allegations? Look, you know, in this political environment, you know, I don't know what somebody might cook up, but I can tell you that there is absolutely nobody that I'm aware of who's, who has any sort of, who's threatening or suggesting or has ever made a prior accusation. How can Democrats explain a very obvious double standard in outrage? Look, there needs to be one standard, and the issue of looking into allegations of rape, sexual assault, sexual harassment need to be done apolitically. And that's really a standard we can't ever veer off of. Yeah. And we have to remember, we've made progress in how we treat survivors of rape and sexual assault, right. but we're not in the place we should be as a country. But I don't think it's just, I don't yeah. think it's just the Democrats who have a double standard and bias I here. I, I think, well, I think Republicans do too, but I think the media does. Now, you've just showed this, but yeah. that's probably, uh, no, that's admit that a supreme lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court mm -hmm. is more newsworthy yeah. mm -hmm. than yeah. an attorney general of Minnesota. But this is not a nobody who is or was the Democratic uh, chair of the Democratic National Convention. He's the vice, he chair, vice right? chair, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so um, this is a big deal. And I would venture to say that the media is not really covering this, at least not the kind of coverage that it might get if he were a Republican. That you would think it would get and maybe should get. Um, okay, Matt, Christine, really appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Next. Polarization is the name of the game for both parties, but are they both ignoring an important voting bloc that could be instrumental in deciding the midterm elections? Coming up, did the president just declare war on the FBI and the DOJ? Senator Ted Cruz and Congressman Beto O'Rourke faced off in their first debate last night in what has become a surprisingly tight race for Cruz's Texas Senate seat. So it's not surprising the two spent the evening sniping and sparring, and that carried over into what was supposed to be that time-honored tradition of ending on a note of politeness and civility. Asked to say something nice about each other, O'Rourke praised Cruz's work ethic and sacrifice for public service. Here's what Cruz said about his opponent. Bernie Sanders believes in what he's fighting for. He believes in socialism. Now, I think what he's fighting for doesn't work, but I think you are absolutely sincere, like Bernie, 
that you believe in, in expanding government and higher taxes. And, and, and I commend you for fighting for what you believe in. As you noted, we disagree on the outcome, but you're fighting for the principles you believe in, and I, I respect that. True. Most polls have Democratic challenger O'Rourke within striking distance of the incumbent Cruz. This in a state that Trump won by nine points. But for O'Rourke to pull off, pull off the upset, he'd have to snap a very long losing streak. Democrats haven't won a statewide election in Texas since 1994. We'll be back in two minutes. In the Red File tonight, all this Brett Kavanaugh controversy, remember, is happening just seven weeks before the midterm elections. You'd better believe that has the GOP worried. And with good reason, a new NBC News Wall Street Journal poll shows opposition to Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation has increased nine points in just the last month. A particular block of voters, though, is even more troubling. Independents. Independents were plus 15 in favor of Kavanaugh in August and are now minus 16. That's a 30-point swing in just a month and not in the direction Republicans want. So the big question is, will independents throw their votes to Democrats, particularly in key suburban races in November? Joining me now is CNN political analyst and senior political correspondent for The Washington Examiner, David Drucker. Um, David, how much of a factor do you believe the Kavanaugh controversy is for the November elections? Well, I think it sort of depends, SC, on how this thing plays out and where it finishes. It could go a couple of different ways. Obviously, Republicans are concerned because a lot of this has to do with sexual assault allegations, and Republicans are in a lot of trouble with female voters in the suburbs that you mentioned. But there's another aspect to this, and that is that Republicans, for all of the trouble that they're in in the House, still have a chance to maintain their Senate majority. In fact, they could actually grow their Senate majority because the map is so favorable playing out in states that Trump didn't just win but continues to enjoy a wide margin of support. But if Republican base voters see Republicans abandon Kavanaugh with the circumstances surrounding the allegations not changing, in other words, we don't find out he's been lying, we don't have more corroborate, well, we don't have any corroborating evidence, mm -hmm. and it's just a he said, she said, they're going to look at this Republican majority, which is slim, 51-49, and they're going to say to themselves, the Democrats are running the show. Why bother showing up? So it's a mm. very delicate dance the Republicans in the Senate are playing here. What about Democrats, though? Do you think that there's a danger for Democrats in overplaying Kavanaugh? Yeah, there is. I mean, look, this thing has been so topsy-turvy. As it was first breaking last week, Republicans were playing defense. Then in the middle of this week, when it looked like Democrats were hedging and they, all of a sudden they got the hearing they wanted and then they were saying, wait, this is going too fast. We don't actually want the yeah. hearing right away. Um, the, the credibility surrounding the allegations, I think, from a Republican perspective and, and possibly from the perspective of independent voters, w wasn't looking all of that good. And then, of course, we saw mm. the shenanigans with Ed Whalen's uh, yeah. Twitter thread trying yeah. to create some other um, some possibility. <laughs> some other, yeah, some other right. possibility. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm sorry for <clears throat> skipping over my words here. And and so all of a sudden now this tilted back in in the favor of Democratic yeah. political momentum, even though there's so much more involved here with politics. All of that is to say. This thing is not done yet, and I think Democrats mm -hmm. do have to be careful about not overplaying their hand and have yeah. voters looking at them as just trying to do anything they can to stall a nomination that they don't have the numbers to stall. So putting Kavanaugh aside or taking that out of it, if you can, 
you know, many analysts believe that suburban women will be a deciding factor in this upcoming midterms. But could independence be even more crucial, do you think? I think independents are going to be uh, key. Uh, and we've looked at the polling on this over the summer and into the fall. And what we found is that independents are swinging for the Democrats uh, by anywhere from 10 to 15 points, depending on the poll. Wow. And in fact, in the most recent CNN poll, the Democrats in the generic ballot question of who voters would prefer be in charge on Capitol Hill, uh, Democrats were preferred by independents over Republicans by 12 points. And, mm. and true independents, uh, the ones that are persuadable, the ones that can swing, they are fed up with the partisanship in Washington. I suppose they have been for a long time. But they're looking at the partisanship that currently exists, and they're blaming President Trump. They're blaming his tone. And that's one of the reasons they're looking at Democrats. And this is a very big deal. One of the reasons President Trump, in fact, won in 2016, is he ended up getting a lot of that independent vote, especially where it mattered. And right. the, the only thing I guess we could say about this is in the same CNN poll, uh, independents you know, turned off by what they're seeing in D.C. were 12 points less enthusiastic to vote than were Republicans, who were about 8 to 10 points less enthusiastic to vote than <laughs> Democrats. So wow. um, I think this is a really big deal that people forget about when they just yeah. focus on gerrymandering and red states, blue states. Interesting. David Drucker, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, stunning new reports seem to vindicate President Trump's deep state paranoia. Seem to. <laughs> According to several bombshell reports, President Trump has a traitor in his midst. Or it was all just a joke, or it's just the deep state being all deep state. Anonymous sources can't seem to agree. In a story first reported by the New York Times, much of it confirmed by CNN, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, the second most senior official in the Justice Department, suggested during a May 2017 meeting with then-acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe that he should secretly record President Trump to, quote, expose the chaos consuming the administration. Rosenstein also reportedly discussed recruiting cabinet members, including then-Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly and Attorney General Jeff Sessions, to invoke the 25th Amendment a constitutional process that would allow the vice president and members of the cabinet to remove Mr. Trump from office. Big if true. Stress on the if, because according to reporting in the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, and also included in CNN's reporting, the comment was made in jest. At least one person who attended the meeting described Rosenstein's suggestion of recording the president as a sarcastic comment, which was not meant to be taken seriously. The New York Times is standing by its story with reporter Adam Goldman telling Jake Tapper that as far as he understands, this was not a flippant remark. For his part, Rod Rosenstein is pushing back against the New York Times story. In a statement, Rosenstein said, the New York Times story is inaccurate, factually incorrect. I will not further comment on a story based on anonymous sources who are obviously biased against the department and are advancing their own political agenda. But let me be clear about this. Based on my personal dealings with the president, there is no basis to invoke the 25th Amendment. All right, for more on this, let me bring in former FBI senior intelligence advisor and former CIA counterterrorism official CNN analyst Phil Mudd. Phil, first, do you believe this conversation happened as it's being reported? I believe it did, but I think context is everything here. Let me add one 
phrase. Let's say that Rosenstein said that and he said it with a smile. What would you say? If he said it without a smile, you'd say something different. Look, SE, yeah. if I had cataloged every sarcastic comment I heard from senior officials across government in the FBI and CIA, I also served at the White House, I could write an encyclopedia. I don't doubt that he said it. I yeah. question whether he meant it. And those are pretty significantly mm -hmm. different. Yeah. So if we believe this conversation happened, uh, as you and I do, who do you think might have been motivated to leak this information to the New York Times? That's sort of the, the, the nuts uh, of what are, are being speculated about right now. There's a couple characteristics to people I saw or who I thought I saw leaking information. One is people who thought they were sidelined. In other words, people who thought they mm. were, had important positions in government and they were sidelined in policy conversations. The second, and I think that's what happened here, is people who either disagree with the policy direction or dis disagree with people taking the policy direction. Mm. People who leak have a reason for doing so. They don't like what somebody's doing or they don't like the fact that their ego hasn't been massaged. In my judgment, this is one of the one of the, both of those categories. My guess is it's somebody who doesn't like what they saw out of Rosenstein. They declined to say the fact that he was smiling and laughing when he said it, mm -hmm. and they said they're gonna smear him. I don't doubt that it happened. I suspect that whoever said it has an ax to grind. Could that person in your mind be Andy McCabe? I don't think Andy leaked this. I know Andy personally, so let me confess that up front. He was a serious dude. He is smart as you want to get. Yeah. I wouldn't rule out that it would be in a document he wrote from a conversation. In other words, when you walk out of a meeting, and if you're an FBI officer, you might record the contents of that meeting. In official right. circles, when you're doing a criminal investigation, that's called a 302. If you're just having a conversation, you might also record verbatim what happened. Verbatim, it might have said that Rosenstein uh, raised that in a meeting. It might not say what the context was, and context here is about 80% of the story. You know, I want to ask you about morale, both inside law enforcement and mm -hmm. intelligence. Um, I'm sure you heard what Trump has been saying about the FBI, that lingering stench inside the FBI. Um, if Trump uses this story to go nuclear and fire Rod Rosenstein, maybe, maybe even fire Robert Mueller, uh, how do you think law enforcement and intelligence officials, rank and file, would respond would you would you anticipate resignations or just sort of like keep your head down and get through this next latest controversy boy it's it's a rare one sc when i can tell you, you stumped the chump on with this one first mm. i don't think he can fire Mueller. i think if he tried to do that there would be an interesting and i think this <laughs> would be a public conversation about whether that was legal I tell you, I've seen a lot of stress in t when I was in government for 25 years. 99% of the workforce does not have interaction with the White House, maybe 99.8%. The people they interact with are people like FBI Director Chris Wray, who I think has an excellent reputation, the mm -hmm. CIA Director Gina Haspel, who I know personally, she's terrific. Mm -hmm. I think they'd look and say, look, our job is supposed to look at things like white-collared crime, gang activity at the FBI, what's going on with the North Korean nuclear program at the CIA. I think 99% of the population would say, this is really unpleasant when I go home at night, but during the day, I got a mission, and that mission directive continues yeah. regardless of what the president does. I know that sounds Pollyannish, but they work for the American people, too, and that work doesn't stop. No, that's actually really encouraging, because you know how much I respect and support 
people in law enforcement and in the intel community, and I like to think that they can sort of tune some of that stuff out. I hope that they do. I'm glad you said that. Phil, thanks for joining me. I think they do. Good. A quick note, tomorrow on Fareed Zakaria GPS, Fareed talks with former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg about that potential 2020 run. Tune in to Fareed Zakaria GPS for the exclusive tomorrow morning at 10. And up next for us, tension between the U.S. and Iran escalates as a terrorist attack there kills dozens, including children. Early this morning, gunmen opened fire on an annual military parade in the southwest city of Afaz in Iran, killing 29 and injuring at least 70, including military personnel, civilians, a journalist and children. Iran initially cited a separatist group stating that it had claimed responsibility, though that group has since denied it was responsible. ISIS has also claimed responsibility. But Iran is also blaming the U.S., in the wake of the attack, Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif tweeted, Terrorists recruited, trained, armed and paid by a foreign regime have attacked Ahvaz. Iran holds regional terror sponsors and their U.S. masters accountable for such attacks. Iran will respond swiftly and decisively in defense of Iranian lives. To say U.S.-Iranian relations have been historically tense would be an understatement, but certainly the Trump administration is taking a more firm some might say more traditional posture than the Obama White House after the president withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal that his predecessor negotiated. Just yesterday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo issued a warning to the Islamic Republic for missile attacks earlier this month on U.S. missions in Iraq. We will not let Iran get away with using a proxy force to attack an American interest. Iran will be held accountable. Joining me now to discuss how all of this will play out are CNN military and diplomatic analyst, retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral John Kirby and CNN national security analyst Samantha Vinograd. Um, Sam, let me start with you. The idea that Iran blames the U.S. for engineering an attack on the Iranian military and citizenry, including children, is that unusual posturing? Essie, this is so predictable and also so hypocritical. It's predictable because every time something goes wrong in Iran, they blame everybody except themselves. They've done this when there have been previous attacks in the same province as the attack today, when yeah. Arab insurgents have taken responsibility, instead of saying, okay, maybe this group feels disenfranchised and there's issues that we need to address, they do it uh, when it comes to their economy. They blame us for decades of economic mismanagement. And this is also mm. deeply hypocritical, Essie. I lived in Iraq and I can't tell you how many times I ducked and covered when missiles from Iranian-backed proxies stuck, yeah. uh, struck the green zone in 2007. Iran supports more terrorist groups in the region than stars in the sky. And yeah. Zarif making this statement, again, is both predictable and hypocritical. Yeah. Uh, Admiral Kirby, Secretary of State Pompeo, has unsurprisingly talked tough about Iran vis-a-vis -vis, uh, U.S. missions in Iraq, Syria, Russia. But when he says Iran will be held accountable, that we're going to go to the source, that's a quote, is that an escalation in rhetoric in your, in your view? 
I don't think it's much of an ex escalation for this administration in the way they've been talking about Iran. I mean, and, and look, even under the Obama yeah. administration, we, we uh, heightened sanctions against Iran, and we always said that all options were on the table and that we would do what we needed to do to protect our, our interests and our troops over there. So, no, I don't, I don't see it as a particularly new escalation, hmm. but it is very tough talk going into the U.N. General Assembly. And make no mistake, right. see, that's what this is about. He's teeing up President Trump and his speech at the U.N. General Assembly uh, coming up here next week, and what we anticipate is going to be a very muscular, um, if not pugilistic speech uh, aimed at Iran. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Admiral Kirby, sticking with you for just one second. What message do you think President Trump should bring to that U.N. General Council meeting next week? Well, I hope it's not all about Iran, but I have a feeling that that's going to be the headlines he's driving at. Uh, and I think, you know, look, I, obviously we need to be tough about Iran. Sam is right. They are a, a bad actor in the region and a state sponsor of terrorism. And the United States should remain uh, strong and united with our allies and partners against them. But I don't think it's going to be useful for him to just beat his shoe on the podium like Khrushchev and say that we're going to, you know, we're going to bury you. We're going to take it to the source. We're going to, you know, we're going to eliminate uh, your regime. That's not going to be helpful. Iran is already, you, you've seen seen uh, Rouhani talk about this. Zarif has talked about this in relation to the attack uh, today. Mm -hmm. They've already said they're not going to be intimidated. They're not going to be bullied. And they're going to start increasing their defensive power, which we right. take as offensive power. Well, Sam, to that point, um, Rouhani declared earlier today that Iran will defeat Trump, saying America would suffer the same fate as Saddam Hussein. He also said Iran would never abandon the, quote, missiles that make America so angry. Was he referring, do you think, to nuclear proliferation or just existing, existing weapons? I think it's probably existing missiles at this point, because remember, Iran is still trying to get the European powers to get waivers for the sanctions that are due to come into effect in November. So I think that Iran hmm. is probably going to want to get into a war of words of sorts, but they're still going to play the victim. The United States, hmm. uh, President Trump is actually chairing a special session of the U.N. Security Council on Wednesday, which is really about Iran and is going to point the finger hmm. at Iran and talk about all the bad things that they're doing. And Iran will undoubtedly answer back and point the finger back at us. But I don't think that mm. they really want to ostracize the Europeans right now and give the Europeans any reason to back away from saying, look, the IAEA said that Iran is not violating the nuclear deal. They've kept their commitments. We deserve waivers on sanctions on the Iranian mm. energy sector for this reason. So I think the Iranians will walk the line. Admiral Kirby, I have 30 seconds, but I'm wondering, uh, Iran is suggesting that Saudi Arabia backed the militants behind this deadly assault. I'm wondering uh, what you think of that uh, assertion. Yeah, look, I think it's too soon to tell. I mean, it, the, Iran has only, you know, only not been very, very much a victim of uh, Sunni-inspired terrorist attacks. I mean, the last one was like in June of 2017, and that was ISIS. So I think we need to do a lot more work here. Uh, I'm not ruling it out. I don't think you could say definitively that they weren't Thank behind you. this in some way, but I don't okay. think uh, we know yet. Thank you so much, guys, both of you. That's it for us tonight. CNN Newsroom with Ana Cabrera is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.